Good morning, everyone. Let's take our seats. Uh, last week, towards the end, we ran out of time. I didn't have time to read the prophecy of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52:13. If you'd like to turn there, Isaiah 52:13 through 53. Uh, you know, I said Solomon must be willing to accept the suffering servant and find contentment. In a world turned upside down, full of crookedness and and things that are lacking, those kinks and those gaps, if he's not willing to accept that, then is he willing to accept the Savior himself? Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations... Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, from for our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had, not, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your good gift of salvation to us. We thank you that in a world turned upside down through the curse, uh, you believed it important to take that lesser role, to take the role of the despised over the role of the honored. May it be a, a lesson and a case study to us, Lord, as we strive to live our lives aright in this world under the sun. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes examines the harm that folly causes. 10, 1 through 4. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. 
So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. Even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. Just as one sinner destroys much good, we saw in the very last verse in 918, we see here that it does not take much folly to ruin one's entire reputation. But more significant than that, in line with the ESV and the NAS, the focus may be a little more on folly outweighing or being more potent than wisdom and honor. So this is again Solomon questioning the value of wisdom if it can be so easily frustrated. This is what he sees. The sweet aroma of wisdom made so readily to stink by even the smallest of creatures. But it begs the question, does carelessness or reckless sin that led to the fly in the ointment negate the value of wisdom? Or does it just remind us that even godly wisdom can end in thwarted plans. In verse 2, the right hand is recognized as the position of honor, as Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father. More importantly here, though, it's a general understanding of the right hand being stronger and more dexterous than the left hand. And so we must use skill, Becky, who's left-handed. Uh, and Jonah 4.11 recognizes the mercy of God to dead sinners. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left? And even Solomon asked in 1 Kings 3 for such understanding, didn't he? Now, O Lord... My God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? 10.3. He walks, fool walks along the way. He shows everyone that he's a fool. See, the problem with the fool, and we've all been there, is going around thinking that everyone else is the fool. And perhaps it should give us some pause if we are always seeming to be in the right. In verse 4, we can think of Proverbs 16, 14 through 15. As messengers of death is the king's wrath. But a wise man will appease it in the light of the king's face is life and his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. I'm going to be quoting Charles Bridges a lot, Dan. I haven't done it a lot, but he's, he had some zingers in, in chapter 10 that I wanted to share. The power over the spirit is a far higher glory than an earthly triumph. A victory over ourselves is more glorious than a victory over others. The vehement impulse, the impulse to anger, he says, seems to show that we think more of ourselves than of our cause. Yet this yielding must never arise, the yielding to the king must never arise from cowardice, from a mean-spirited fear of losing the favor of man. 
5 through 7. There is an evil I have seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. I've seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. So this is Solomon again returning to his observations. That's his, his method. I have seen under the, under the sun. And here he sees that it's actually the ruler's errors that are the source of evil. Frustrating the order Solomon expects to see. In other words, Solomon is concerned about folly set in positions of dignity. But here Solomon has to be careful to remember his own examples in chapter 4. Remember the old and foolish king who would be admonished no more? But the poor wise youth rose up out of prison to be king in his place. And in chapter 9, the poor wise man who delivered the city from the siege of a great king by his wisdom, even though he was poor. Do you remember how Solomon was bothered? What was he bothered by in the case of the poor young king who arose out of prison? He took the spot of the foolish king. What's wrong with that? What was it that ultimately bothered Solomon in chapter 4? What did the people come to think of the new guy? The wise king, the new wise king. He was disdained in time as much as the old and foolish king. How about chapter 9? After the poor wise man delivered the city by his wisdom, what became of him? And, and why was Solomon frustrated? Again, the fickle crowds. They rejected not only him in the end, they took advantage of his wisdom, but rejected him and even put his wisdom to scorn, ultimately. Short memories. You see and sense more of the frustration of Solomon. We see Solomon here unwilling to recognize the possibility that the poor can have anything to offer a kingdom. Which is not what he was saying before. Craig Bartholomew points out that wealth is a major concern for Kohelet, for Solomon. And here it subtly creeps in as a synonym for wisdom. Setting folly versus the rich, slaves versus princes, instead of focusing on wisdom against foolishness, the wise against fools. Even though he wrote in Proverbs 8.16, it is not by riches that rulers rule, but by wisdom. We must be careful, too, to avoid such categories of, well, there's a poor person, so they must not have anything to offer. If we do that, we're, we're no better than Job's friends, the miserable comforters, right? They looked at Job. Look at you. Where, where's all of your wealth? What have you done to lead to this? Instead of recognizing, no, God is sovereign to act as he wants to act in this fallen creation. In verses 8 through 11, we read, He who digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. 
I've always wondered what the phrase hoisted with your own petard means. I had no idea it was from Hamlet. Um, it seemed to fit, and the, you know, the guy falling in, in the own, his own pit. So I looked it up. Apparently they're making a bomb and it explodes and sends him hoisted through the air. I've never read Hamlet and don't intend to start now. But um, this is like being hoisted with your own petard, your, your own bomb. Evil deeds that men do falling back on the authors. Digging a pit for someone and falling into it yourself or breaking into a house and disturbing a venomous snake. It's interesting that Solomon suggests these things in verse 8 will happen as a natural consequence rather than the events in chapter 9, which may, or excuse me, in verse 9, which may happen. And he would not be off the mark in chapter 8 if he is remembering that he is already spoken of it in the coming judgment. Proverbs twenty six twenty seven, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Can you name a wicked person from the Old Testament who rolled that stone and it fell back on him? Who constructed something to put somebody else to death? They, they wound up being, being put to death on it. Haman building the gallows for Mordecai. And by the end of the book, King Xerxes says, that's for you. It's actually got your name on it. And they hung him high on it. In verse 9, though, we turn to this: these things that may happen. Again, we're dealing with time and chance happenings as in Ecclesiastes 9.11, time and chance happen to them all, which is, is just uh, not chance in, in any godlike sense, but it is God acting in unexpected ways. One can be injured unexpectedly when working with heavy tools like an axe. Solomon's methodology and grasp of wisdom is so shaky, we can note that he is bothered by uncontrollable accidents. Time and chance which only add to the mystery and the vanity of life that's been bothering him. In verse 10, we see that folly is irresponsible and hasty. The wise would have prepared and sharpened their tools for the job. Knowledge and understanding over brute force. So I'm kind of legendary with the chainsaw thing. Uh, called Philip in the last couple of years. Hey, I'm on my way to the emergency room. Can you come and clean up um, some of this bamboo over here in the parking lot? Um, but it wasn't the only time. I, I don't know. The brain shuts off. There was a time when I was up in a tree with a chainsaw, and I pulled it up with a rope, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to untie it from the rope because I'll just have to tie it back on again to lean it down. So I start to, start to cut the branch I'm sitting on. <laughs> no, it's not, um, it's not Wiley Coyote. Don't worry. I'm cutting on the outside of the branch. And the branch falls and hits the rope. And all of a sudden, I heard a racing chainsaw. And uh, my first thought was, why is the chainsaw running at full blast when I'm not pulling the trigger? And uh, the second thing was, why is my body shaking? Oh. <laughs> so I look over, and 
the, the, the rope has caused the thing to come up, push my finger on the trigger full speed, and it's plowing into my shoulder, where mercifully I was wearing a webbing harness to climb the tree. And because I was so cheap and had not sharpened my blade or, or my chain and, or bought a new one, uh, it had only made it halfway through the harness. So, uh, time to give up chainsaw work. Yes. Now, if if I wasn't so cheap, I would have paid two hundred dollars for a professional to come get up in that tree, and cut the limb. Now, I knew there was. A, I should have brought the book. It's the Craig Bartholomew one. I've really been defaulting to. He says, "Sharpen it. Wisdom brings success." But this traditional wisdom is subverted by verse 9 and what follows. If one can endanger oneself by splitting logs, it may be better to have a blunt axe than to have a sharp one. So, fool's gold, I guess. So, you know, you might say uh, another verse for Ecclesiastes, the wise man sharpens his axe unless he wields it like a fool. This is the fly in the ointment, the little mistake, cleaving your face in two, nearly losing an ear. Another verse, perhaps, the wise man sharpens his axe unless he doesn't want to risk a worse accident. These are chance events that endanger even the wise man. If Solomon could not control outcomes due to folly or chance events, then he's learning that even godly wisdom under the sun does not guarantee success, our best efforts. But you know what it does guarantee? The plan of God. The question is, can Solomon live with that? In verse 11, I prefer the ESV, which says, there's no advantage to the snake charmer. Or the NAS, there is no benefit for the charmer when the snake is going to bite, when they were perhaps not prompt enough in charming, when they were perhaps too careless. Even expertise cannot guarantee success. This is more wisdom applied to a situation that still does not accomplish the goal. 12 through 15. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words. No man knows what is to be, who can tell him what will be after him. The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. These are more harms caused by folly, by running at the mouth. Remember, a fool is known by his many words. These verses here are mostly biblical wisdom, not earthly wisdom. In verse 12, the words of the wise are gracious. Now, this can mean two equally positive things. Our words of graciousness speak grace grace to others, but they also bring grace back to us potentially. Think about grace. It breathes life. Grace is not a reward. It is a gift. It builds up. But he says the lips of the fool shall shall swallow 
him up. This is destruction from the lips of fools to others and to yourself. Another great one from Charles Bridges. Uh, I, I need to put this one in my pocket and carry it around. Words are too often the substitute for thinking. Verse 13. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness and the end of his talk is raving madness. This is foolish words on the move, producing the fruit of madness. Foolish words coming out of a well of poor character and feeding back into that poor character. Matthew 12.34 tells us, Out of the abundance of the heart, the character, the mouth speaks. Michael Eaton writes about this verse, All wisdom writings deal with the tongue, tongue at some point. For the character of one's talk is the acid test of wisdom. The end of foolish talk is wicked madness that is morally perverse. Verse 14, a fool multiplying words. He's known by his many words. Michael Eaton says, the fool speaks with conviction of the present and even of the future. But this verse concludes with, no one knows what is to be who can tell him what will be after him. So Solomon is again frustrated. No one can be assured of what is to come in other words, the fool may not even pay the penalty on the earth for their foolishness. In verse 15, the labor of fools wearies them for they do not even know how to go to the city. Here Solomon points out that the fool's actions follow his speech and follow his character. The fool is lazy, has no sense of enterprise or care to attend to the most basic of matters to get to the city where he can work. Well, I have a question for you. How much of our lives is shaped by confident prediction about the future? Ours or someone else's? Prediction about the future? Take it any way you want. Both. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're only given today. We're not given tomorrow. Okay. We're only promised today, if even, not tomorrow. Right. I mean, James tells us, you know, worry, worry for the day. I, I guess it's Matthew. Uh, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. I, I can say that I feel like I think I have a well yeah skipped right over that one it's, it's related to another question I wanted to ask um, I, I, I know I like to be as comfortable as possible and seemingly avoid as many trials as possible. So I'm glad I'm not in charge of my life or I would probably never learn anything. 
Um, I like to look out ahead for the next week or two and predict what what landmines might be there. Which there's there's a wisdom to that, but not when it becomes an idol. The other question I had missed after the snake charmer verse was, how do we shelter our? I would like some feedback. How do we shelter ourselves from the fear of failure by having space only for the predictable in our lives? How do we shelter ourselves from the fear of failure by having space only for the predictable in our lives? Because that's earthly wisdom. It sounds like the answer is you can't if you only have space for what's predictable. Okay. It sounds like you need to humble your. I need to hum, humble my heart and open my mind um, by God's grace to what's going to be unpredictable and to rely on Him. So okay. my answer to that is if you only have room for the predictable, then you're going to run. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we can certainly structure our, our lives to, to cut out as much of the unpredictable as, as we can manage. But we're not really allowing God to move in our lives at that point. Now, he will. We're, we're not going to frustrate him. But uh, in the meanwhile, moving along the plan that he has ordained for us, uh, we're, we're, we're killing our own heart. We're not shedding forth that Christian witness and the light that we should be. Yes, Tim? Use a biblical example. The apostles didn't have any room for a cross. They didn't see a, 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 that potential, in their mind, failure, right? Peter didn't have any room for denying Jesus Christ, even though Jesus, God in flesh, told him he would. And it was his will to do so. And he said, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And, you know, those words resembled me. That's what I've done my whole life. I've tried to manage it, control it, uh, try to avoid uh, disappointment and rejection. Instead, these are what Jesus had embraced in this life. Mm-hmm. And like my wife would often tell me when I beat myself up about things, she goes, don't you think that Jesus knows that that you were going to make that mistake and he loves you anyways and he wants you to learn from it and it's like yeah but because I so trained myself to try to avoid trouble that it kept me away from Jesus himself who embraced it and told me in this life you're going to have trouble but be a good cheer I have overcome it and I had to change my thinking is it all changed yet? No, but arm myself with the idea that that's his calling on his people to even embrace failure that he even providentially brings into their life for wisdom, for learning, for death to the flesh, for resurrection life. And what is it, Psalm 50 says, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Well, if you have no trouble, you're not going to call on God to deliver you. It's not easy to live that way, but it is the Christian way. Right, so the idea of uh, the apostles, the uh, disciples, not being ready to bear the cross. 
much like we opened with, with the uh, suffering servant. Um, yeah, I, in around 1996, I was in my second year at the public defender's office. Can I just say it's awful having a job where um, you go to trial. <laughs> they're, they're actual actual trials, uh, jury trials, but uh, ha-ha. Um, I, I got burned in a trial probably about my seventh or eighth one. Boy, my my spirit just shut down. I just got in this cocoon as far as trials, and I even trying to avoid them for a year or two. I was just so burned and embarrassed by what happened, um, and and I still I still fight that urge um, to pull back and uh, rather than leaving the outcome in God's hands. Matt, yes. I wonder if a way to describe this maybe worldly, but wisdom often does sound worldly, that the Christian should not be risk-averse. Sure. The Christian should not be risk-averse. Um, you know, Christ was not. We're reading about the apostles in Acts. They were not. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're getting up to where Paul was let down out of the wall to um, avoid being killed. Um you don't get the sense that he was uh, that that was a concern about the fear of man, but a concern about the fear of God. Uh, he would live to fight another day. Uh, let's do sixteen to twenty. Want to speed up a hair if that's possible? Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the building decays and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king. Even in your thought, do not curse the rich. Even in your bedroom, for a bird of the air may carry your voice in a bird in flight may tell the matter. These verses are more of the harms of folly, but here in the ruling class, harming the nation as a whole. This is still the fly in the ointment, except this time what is ruined is a much higher, of much higher value than even the most precious of ointments, entire peoples and nations. And as Bridges points out, the higher the rank, the more aggravated the sin In 16, Solomon actually pronounces a woe on the land when your king has the understanding of a child. And, of course, Solomon, as a young king, had confessed that he was a little child. And your princes, the ruling nobility under him, the decision makers gather in the morning, not in the business of the land or of its people, but to drink the best hours away. In verse 17, Solomon pronounces a blessing on the land when your princes feast after the hard work is done, and even then not for drunkenness. But verse 17 cuts both ways. Did you notice notice the blessing is when they feast at the proper time with self-control, but also the blessing is conditioned on a third requirement, when your king is the son of nobles. So again, as in verses 5 through 7, we see Solomon failing to recognize the value of the poor, wise youth who arose out of prison in the place of the foolish king who would be admonished no more. 
or of the poor wise man who saved the besieged city. And at this point it must be asked, is Solomon still exalting wealth over godly wisdom? In 1018, we've certainly read the plenty of Proverbs on individual sloth and its consequences. There's a lion in the streets, letting one's imagination of the worst possible events freeze one in fear. The sluggard moves, but it's only to roll over in his bed. He can't even move his hand from the bowl of food to his mouth to feed himself. And so he suffers decay and then death. But taking verse 18 in these last few verses in context, this is speaking of national life. It seems we have the nations building its very structure in decay until the rafters sag and the roof leaks and folly overthrows the rulers, the nation, and the people. 19 through 20, Solomon praises bread and wine and then says, but money answers everything. So again, has Solomon exalted wealth over godly wisdom? In Ecclesiastes 7.12, Solomon had compared the protection of wisdom to the protection of money. But recognize that it is wisdom that gives life to those who have it. Back then I suggested that Solomon was saying they're both useful, wisdom and money. But here Solomon singles out money alone as answering everything. This is setting up, again, riches against folly rather than wisdom against folly. So riches are substituted for wisdom. This leads Craig Bartholomew to conclude of verse 20. If money answers everything, you must remain in favor with the elite, the rulers and the rich. The hyperbole in verse 20 about birds carrying your your words or, or even in your bedroom or in your own heart, is that if money answers everything, then one must stay in favor with the king at all costs, which is idolatry of wealth and position. 11, 1, and 2, we'll do the first uh, six verses, and then then we'll be done for today. And then the good news, it's going to completely turn around next week. Ecclesiastes ends in a beautiful poem as it began with a poem that caused some distress. Remember the the endless round, the rivers that never empty, the ocean that's never full, the sun rising and setting and rising and setting. He's going to talk about an end that is coming and it is a great encouragement. So I'm going to, we'll pick on Solomon a few more times, but... uh, Rejoice that the Holy Spirit uh, had him write chapters 11 and 12 of Ecclesiastes. 1 through 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. We cannot predict future events that will occur under the sun. So wisdom calls out, as David Gibson suggests, to let the uncertainties of life under the sun have a shaping influence on the certainties of life, the things we do know or or can expect and control. Seen the right way, verses 1 and 2 could relate to two different things. There's, There's two major views. One, 
being liberal, casting your bread on the waters, giving alms or charity broadly upon the waters, and in verse 2, generously sharing in a variety of ways to 7 and to 8 that will benefit others in the evil of hard times. But um, I come down personally on the second interpretation. This was a king speaking, by the way, referring to maritime trade on the seas, releasing one's bread on the waters. In verse 2, diversifying your cargo, dividing it among ships to protect your investment and maximize your prospects in the event of calamity. Do you remember back in the day, uh, and even now over on the west coast of Africa, you're going to travel in caravans uh, because of piracy. Uh, you know, it's like the gazelle, the herd of gazelles. You only you don't have to outrun everybody in the herd. You just have to outrun one of them, uh, who will fall to the pirate. Uh, I, I do like this idea of maritime trade because he says for. You will find it after many days um, seems to reflect the idea of maritime trade. Um, and that before I go on, interestingly, Proverbs 31:14, the virtuous wife is compared to the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. And remember Solomon's fleet. We read about that some, First Kings 10:22. It would return once every three years with a diversified cargo, gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. Uh, some translations call monkeys peacocks. Uh, the point being a whole wide array. Um, remember, though, if money answers everything, Solomon is saying one must be wise in protecting as much of it as possible. And it's interesting how such a thought of being too tight-fisted can work against the idea, for the other interpretation of the verse, of being generous in almsgiving. We must be generous in almsgiving. That is, both truths are, are evident, even if this passage probably only means one thing. As Craig Bartholomew notes, the idea of money answering everything exposes an idolatry of wealth when wealth replaces God in our hearts under the sun. Verses 3 through 5. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind... Or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. So here we see the inevitability of God's plans. The clouds gathering moisture and bursting forth in rain. When and where? We don't know. In God's time at God's location. So there's many images in the Bible of the farmer who trusts in God for the rain. We have the tree falling again, when and where and what direction it does. These are events we cannot predict, but we can rest in the comfort of God's sovereign will in any event without staring at the clouds to determine whether or not we will sow seed. God's already given the commandment to work and to sow seed. 
Although we cannot always know the best time, given natural or man-made calamities that arise, fear of those outcomes should never be the excuse for rolling back over in our bed. I've got to read this quote from David Gibson. This is the guy fixated on the funeral, that the funeral has got a lot more to tell us than the feast. We know wise living means that neither success nor failure is ultimate. There are better things to do than succeed, more important things to do than make it in the world. And there are worse things to do than fail. We long for success, we fear failure. Kohelet is saying the thing that is worse than success or failure is never to have lived at all. Paralyzed by fear of failure, we, try, we never try anything. And driven by desire to succeed, we focus on only one thing. What if we lived as if there were worse things than dying? Such as living in God's world in a way without really living. Life is gift, not gain. He quotes 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So we turn to the child formed in the womb. This is the limits of human knowledge. This is not the mystery of the way of the wind, as in the New King James. This is another uh, alternative translation. This is the spirit, as in the ESV, the spirit of the fetus, the bones knit together by God, a mystery. We weren't there at the moment of life, he let Job know. God was. God was there in his secret counsel. Psalm 139, 16. When he saw us even before we were formed and wrote our days in his book before there were any days at all. Some of those books uh, are awfully short, aren't they? Uh, Perhaps they end at 30 days or two months or nine months. And maybe one day they'll be killing children at nine months and five days. But... uh, God is sovereign. God is in control of each one. Bridges. We should be humbled by our vast ignorance rather than so prideful of our knowledge. Job 5, 8-16. But as for me, I would seek God, and to, get, commit, and to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable? Marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty. Thank God. That's not in there. but So that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. That would be some of that earthly wisdom, wouldn't it? And the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. Digging a pit. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. And he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth.
Let's quickly finish up verse 6. In the morning sow your seed. In the evening do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So Solomon says to work hard, even if we cannot know what will succeed. Treat work as a gift from God, not as a stepping stone to more idols like the love of wealth. As Bartholomew points out here, money may answer everything, but there's no guarantee of it. Eaton, the life of faith does not remove the problem of our ignorance. Rather, it enables us to live with it. Faith flourishes in the mystery of providence. It does not abolish it. Sowing in the morning and working in the evening means to put in a full and honest day's labor and await God's unfolding plan. So we can't be sure of the character consequence structure anymore in a fallen world that good will lead to blessing and evil will, wickedness will lead to cursing. But we can be sure of what God is going to do. We should live with faith in the Creator. Uncertainty in the hands of God is certainty because He's good and just and merciful, and so we can be relied on and trusted. Don't miss next week. It is the moment we've all been waiting for. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your good and great word. Thank you for speaking to your people. Lord, we thank you for how you dealt with a sinner in Ecclesiastes, how you uh, led him on the journey of his life, uh, we can split hairs about when did he write thus and such and was this before or after he had uh, gone after foreign gods. Uh, Lord, but this is your good word and we see your hand moving through even the life of a sinner. So God, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for your worship. God, enable us through your Holy Spirit to worship you aright. Help us to walk prudently into your presence today. And thank you for the opportunity of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.